We are starting in Acts chapter 6, so we'll be turning there. This is really another sort of behind-the-scenes look at the church. We saw this uh, back at the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, with the, the generosity and the care within the body of Christ, the sort of behind-the-curtains look, and we see something similar going on here in chapter 6. Um, we're seeing an incredible amount of growth in the early church. Okay, the gospel is being preached despite persecution and jail time and floggings and all of this stuff. We're, we're seeing uh, how it's not minimizing the message of the gospel. Persecution is actually watering the seeds of the gospel and it's growing exponentially, really. And we saw last week from uh, Gamaliel in uh, Acts 5 how God uses unlikely sources sometimes to accomplish his purposes and that it, it didn't stop. None of what they did stopped these people. If you look back at chapter 5, verse 42, it says that they just continued to preach. You could not keep them down. They did not cease teaching and preaching that, G- that the Christ is Jesus. That the Messiah is the one who was slain and hung on the tree. Now, throughout the book of Acts, uh, Luke, who's our author here, he doesn't ever... Um, well, he, he talks about church growth a lot. He doesn't uh, shy away from talking about numbers even. I don't think he glamorizes numbers as the most important thing, but he doesn't shy away from it either. You can look back. Already in what we've looked at, there's been four instances where he's referenced physical numbers of people being added to the church. Today, in the, the seven verses that we're going to look at, he, he mentions it twice. And then in five more times in the book of Acts, he talks about physical numbers of people joining the, the, the ranks of the saints here. So again, he's not glamorizing it, saying that this is what church is about, but he's also not like saying that church growth is bad either. So Jesus kind of talks about how church growth is going to happen in a specific way. Um, if you think back to some of his parables, specifically in, in the book of Matthew, he talks about, it's the same chapter where he's talking about the, so, the different soils. He, he gives a short parable about weeds. And if you remember, he's talking about wheat and how the enemies of the farmer came and they plant weeds in with the wheat. And they, what are you supposed to do if you try to pull out the weeds? The, the good wheat comes with it. So Jesus in the parable, he says, you just let them grow together. But at the end, when it's harvested, that's when things get sorted. Well, then he uses another analogy, a very similar one. He talks about catching fish. This certainly would have been one that these guys understood. And he says, when you go out fishing, and we're not talking about hook and bobber. We're talking about big nets. And he says, when you go out fishing, you catch stuff that you don't want in those nets along with the good fish, right? You're catching bad fish. You're catching debris. You're catching stuff that just is not desirable. Well, you don't sit there. Um, and, and try to only lift up the net when the good fish are above it. You just get it all, and then in the end, the separation happens. So what's the point that Jesus is getting at in those parables? What's the point of how it connects with the book of Acts? Well, I think what we've got here 
is kind of some evidence. We've seen it maybe already with Ananias and Sapphira. We'll see it maybe with uh, Simon, uh, the sorcerer, here um, in just a f- another chapter or so. But we're seeing how what Jesus says is true. No matter how faithfully a church preaches the gospel, there's still pretenders in the church. There's still weeds amongst the wheat. There's still bad fish amongst the good fish. And so this really shouldn't surprise us when we see stuff like this happen. I think what it should do is make us alert, our antenna up. Now, what we see growing, going on in Acts 6, you might even call growing pains to some degree. I mean, we've got <clears throat> thousands of people newly converted of different backgrounds. Um, most of these are Jewish, but as we'll see in just a moment, uh, they, don't, they didn't all grow up together. Okay, And so you now have all of these people kind of combined and, and growing and trying to work out what it means to be a church, and there's difficulties amongst them. Call it growing pains, whatever you might. I still think, despite these difficulties and challenges, I still think, like last week, this is the Holy Spirit pressing down on the accelerator for Christian mission here in Jerusalem in the early church. This is still the word of God and the message of the gospel advancing. And so we want to read uh, chapter seven verses one or chapter six rather, verses one through seven, and then we'll pray. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint <clears throat> a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Lord, of, of your children who are here this morning, this is the desire of our heart. To see the word of God increase in our homes, in our hearts, in our community, in our nation, in our world. That's what we long for, Lord, to see the word of God increase, to see the number of disciples greatly multiplied, to see many, even who might have been obstinate to the faith at one point, now become obedient to it. Lord, that's our desire. That's our hope. And yet we can't accomplish this on our own. We could go out and speak more eloquently than anyone. And yet, Lord, if your spirit is not moving, it will be for naught. And so we pray for your spirit to go before us. We pray for your spirit to be upon us and in us. We pray for the name of Christ to be lifted high and that his power would be in us as we go and share with others. 
do that work in your people today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I read this week as I was studying about a church in the South, and this happened 20 or 30 years ago. Um, I read about a church in the South who had a church split. I don't know if it was a Baptist church or not. Um, it, it had to do with food, so maybe it was. Um, but what happened was, um, both sides, sides, I'm putting it, it was the same church, but it broke into factions, and both sides went to the courts uh, to sue the other side for control of the building and the property and those sorts of things. Uh, God gave some kind of wisdom to the judge, and he said, this is not my territory, and so he sent it back to the denomination of the church to handle. And so as they were kind of overseeing these proceedings, they were trying to get to the source of what caused the problem. I already kind of mentioned it, but here's what they found was the conflict that resulted in a church split. At a church dinner, one of the elders of the church got a smaller piece of ham than a kid sitting next to him. Now, I don't know all the details. I'm assuming there's more, there's more to it than that. But that was this, the thing that set off this church split in motion. Now, it's sort of humorous that people can be that petty. Uh, and yet, you know from experience that that can be true. This, maybe the saddest part of this, though, is, as you could guess, this was in Texas, as you can guess, the local paper caught wind of this and wrote an article about this church split. Now imagine it at that point does it even matter which group maintains control of the building? Their witness has been destroyed. Because of the jealousy, because of the conflict, because of ham. <laughs> Um, this just reinforces what we've kind of seen in Ananias and Sapphira and seen in the spiritual leaders uh, in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders, about how if, if, if left unconfessed and unrepented of, jealousy, hypocrisy, bitterness, these things can and inevitably will destroy a church and a family and relationships. They affect, those things affect everyone not just the one person. Fiercer persecution from outside the church is still to come here. But it wasn't budging God's people so far. Now, remember, the enemy is not the, the priests or the spiritual leaders. The enemy is certainly not other people in the body of Christ there. We know the enemy, and we've seen his tricks, and he's still trying them today just like he was then. And so he's tried outward persecution now to a couple different varying degrees, right? He's tried inward distress with Ananias and Sapphira, and now he's ramping that idea up again. Maybe if outward persecution and inward hypocrisy won't split this group up, maybe just grumbling will. Maybe complaining will. Now, you guys, if you know your Old Testament history, you know that that was a major uh, condemnation on the people of God. They were grumblers. And it caused them an awful lot of heartache in the wilderness, partly why they were wandering around for years and years anyway. 
Incredible things were happening inside the church, in, in the community, but the threat now of, of grumbling and discord and discontent threatened the unity of the church body. You can see right there in verse 1, it says, a complaint arose. So somebody's complaining. A group, in fact, are complaining. Now, likely this wasn't, you know, standing up loud, screaming at one another about this, but it was probably more like kind of a low, distant rumble of discontent in the church. These these sorts of things, dissatisfaction, discontent, uh, that all comes from uh, people inside the church here who were feeling neglected. They they said, "Well, we're being our, our our widows are being treated unfairly." You can see Luke calls this group the Hellenists, and this group consisted of people who were Jews, but they were Greek speaking Jews. So some of your translation might actually differentiate them that way. They were Greek speaking Jews. These kind of Greek speaking Jews were still Jews, but they likely lived not in Jerusalem. They lived outside of it for whatever reason. Perhaps they were part of families that had been taken out of Jerusalem, um, like we talked about in Nehemiah, and they just had never returned back. And so they were outside and being away from the heartbeat of uh, the Jewish culture and nation. They had learned other languages uh, for commerce and that sort of thing. But Jerusalem, that's where the purists lived. That's where the the Hebrews that are listed here, the Hebrew-speaking people lived. They spoke the right language. They lived in the right place. They were were seen doing all the right Jewish customs. And so they looked down their noses, if you will, at the Greek-speaking people that were a part of the church. what also influenced this kind of prejudice was the fact that the Pharisees, who many of these people still looked up to for spiritual things, the, the, the Pharisees really held Greek-speaking Jews in, in contempt. They thought they were second-class Jews, if Jews at all, and they really didn't like them. And so now you've got um, all of these people. We're talking thousands of people trusting in the name of Jesus, all together in the church. Now, we're a we're hundred people here, right? And there's still potential for disagreement. Imagine that many more. There's thousands and thousands of people who now have these new brothers and sisters, and yet salvation in Christ didn't automatically eliminate all their prejudice. And so, that's the scenario. That's the powder keg, if you will, that could be ready to explode, Well, Peter, Paul, James, these guys, they saw what was going on. They saw the potential, and so that's why they do the things that they did. But that's why many of them later would go on to write in their letters to the churches all about abstaining from prejudice, not treating people unfairly. These guys were very clear. Treat one another in the body of Christ as equals. In fact, Colossians 3 that we read this morning says that very thing. There's, there's not Jew, Greek, Barbithian, bar, how do you say that? Barbarian, Scythian, uh, Jew. There's, there's none of these differences in the body of Christ. We're united. We're together. Well, reconciliation wasn't coming naturally. 
but it needed to be strived for in the church because Christ has not only removed the barrier between the sinner and God, his death and resurrection knocked down the dividing wall between believers too. And that's what these guys write about in their letters to the churches. But it wasn't long before the Greek-speaking people felt that the Hebrew-speaking people in the church were favoring their own widows at the expense of the other. There's an issue with specifically the distribution of food, and that's why the apostles say we can't give up ministering the word to, to wait tables, okay, because that's what the issue was around. You've got uh, a problem with food distribution. Well, it's, it's food, right? It's, it's a, a, the size of your piece of ham. It's not that big a deal, and yet you could see with that many people, with that many different backgrounds, there was potential for unrest and difficulty. And so whether it was a legitimate issue or just a perceived issue on behalf of some, the apostles obviously took it seriously. And so what do they do? Look at verse 2. There's wisdom in all of this. It says that the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. So guess what? They called a church meeting. They got the church together, and they wanted to work through solutions to this potential threat to their unity. Uh, I, I read a, a, an article. Um, I mentioned this at our last deacon ordination service, but deacons, as we'll find out these guys are called, have been equal or uh, talked about in terms of being shock absorbers. Deacons as shock absorbers. Now, that's not their only job, but you'll see here as we go, and I want you to see it, that what God installs these men to do is more than just wait tables. There's a unification of the church in what God has called them to. They're, they're not just pacifying people. They're actually uniting God's people under what God has called them to do. Now, make no mistake about this. We already talked about who the real enemy is. There's an enemy here. Satan is working behind the scenes to divide the church and degrade the witness of Christ in Jerusalem. Now, evidently, it it was suggested that the apostles work at fixing this this issue and start probably personally handling the distribution of food. Um, After all, these guys were trusted men. God had given them wisdom and insight, the spirit, recognition by Jesus. And so it makes sense that they would have been, it would have been suggested for them to do this. It wasn't unreasonable. But it seems like, to me, these apostles realized uh, the difference in what we might call the principle of, of okay and best. I just made that term up, so you may have heard it a different way. But here's what I mean. It would have been okay for these trusted and godly men to oversee the distribution of food amongst the, the church. There's, it wouldn't have been morally wrong for the apostles to do that sort of a thing. But these men wisely understood that it would be best for them to continue devoting their time to other things. You can see in verse 4, they wanted to continue... It was best for them to continue devoting their time to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, we can see lots of application to this in our own lives because we constantly need wisdom and discernment from the Spirit on what is okay and what is best. And 
brother, sister in Christ, you're, you're going to wrestle with this, I expect, for the rest of your life. I expect to wrestle with this for the rest of my life. And yet, it's a good thing to wrestle with because the apostles here show us some wisdom. So we evaluate things. And, and I'm not talking uh, maybe minimal things like which candy bar to get at the gas station. It's always a zero bar, if you didn't know. I'm not talking about stuff like that. I'm talking about important things that you make decisions on. You can ask yourself these kinds of questions like, okay, maybe it's not morally wrong for me to do X, Y, Z, but is it, is it what, is it what God's best would be for me? Teenagers, this should be in the forefront of your mind in a lot of different ways. Young adults, especially, really all of us, but especially in those stages of life, what is God's best for me? Would it be morally wrong to pursue a relationship with that person? Well, maybe not, but maybe it's not God's best either. Maybe uh, that trip with your classmates wouldn't be wrong for you, but maybe it wouldn't be best either. So Christian freedom comes into play here, I think. Discernment absolutely comes into play. But where do we go to find answers to these kinds of questions? God's Word, right? Now, it, it doesn't tell us the uh, formula for every single question we have an answer to, or we have a question of, and yet it gives us principles on how to determine these things. Well, where do we learn? This begs the question, where do we learn what God's best is for us? Well, through His Word, by learning more about who He is and what He said. So kids, I'm going to test you for just a moment, especially if you've been a part of Awana and training grounds. Pastor Jason has been going through for years with you, and some of you even teenagers might remember this from your time there. There's three questions that we go over in our kids' ministry. Anybody want to, any kid want to raise their hand? Brennan, go ahead and say them real clear, all three of them. All right. Very good. If you couldn't hear that in the back, she said, here are those three questions. Who is God? What is God like? And how should I act towards God? And so Jason leads the kids in different uh, character characteristics, different attributes of God that start with different letters of the alphabet. And we learn in our kids' ministry more about who God is, what he's like, what he, what he dislikes, what he likes. But then also we learn how we should act towards God. Because I think the truth of it is, is that the more that we know who God is and the more that we know what he's like, the more we'll understand how to act towards him and how to determine what's okay and what's actually best according to his word, according to his nature. Well, these guys in the church, they understood this and they understood uh, the priority of preaching that God had called them to. It doesn't make food distribution wrong. It just meant that their ministry lay elsewhere. If the word of God wasn't preached, and if they didn't spend a lot of time in prayer, the truth of the matter is it wouldn't matter at all if they had worked out the most elaborate and efficient food distribution service the world had ever seen. It wouldn't have mattered one bit because the word of God would have taken second back seat. And they knew that wasn't right. And so the best thing in this situation required a different solution than just them doing it. 
Now, before we talk about what the solution they came up, up with, I want us to notice one quick thing. Okay, notice that it's not just the apostles, the leaders of the church here, putting their foot down and saying, we're too good for waiting on tables, so find other people to do it. It's not what they said. They got the church together. They didn't force compliance. Look at verse 3. There's wisdom here. They say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So they said, church, who amongst you fits this criteria? And then look at verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So the ministry of the gospel actually increases here in Jerusalem as a result of these apostles saying no to leading in this kind of ministry. And the church was included in the process of selecting godly, wise, and spirit-filled men to lead. And that was the criteria that was set before them. Select seven men of good repute, full of the spirit, and full of wisdom. Now, we don't know the details of how exactly they went about uh, doing the selection process. Um, we don't know how long this process took. But it doesn't seem like they had any trouble at all coming up with seven guys who could fill that criteria and fill that role. I, I say this when looking at the church here in Acts, and I say this when looking at our church at Ramsey Creek, what a blessing it is to have a church where godly men can be easily found. The seven men in Acts chapter 6 here, they weren't selected because they were super good organizers. They weren't selected because they were really great at administration. What were they selected for? They were selected for their character. And if you look at the different places, primarily First Timothy and Titus, where there's qualifications of both elders and deacons in the church, if you're looking at the, the qualifications for deacons, the qualifications don't rely on administration or practical needs being met either. What do the qualifications for deacons focus on? Character. Focus on character. And so that's why they say people of, uh, of, of wisdom who are full of the Spirit, the first set of deacons were selected because of their character. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about seven guys who were the first deacons. The Greek word that's used here is diakonia, and it's the same word that Paul uses when he's talking about the qualifications of these guys in 1 Timothy and Titus. And if again, if you look at those passages, that's the qualification focus. Now, they have to be willing to serve or else they couldn't fulfill that role. And yet the qualifications focused way more on personal holiness and character than they ever do on administrative ability. These guys were recognized by the church as spirit-filled men. And their primary ministry was to serve the body of believers by leading out in practical needs. But as I mentioned earlier, also reestablishing unity in the body of Christ. What they were doing spoke to the people and to the community that God could actually work things out in this group. And he can still do it in churches today. 
But just because these guys didn't have the primary uh, role or responsibility of teaching and preaching in the church body, it doesn't mean that they weren't capable of it. Uh, some of them were even really gifted at it. Consider the, the first two that are mentioned in verse 5, Stephen and Philip. Well, the next few chapters are going to cover their, their stories. And you probably know, you can see in verse 10 of this chapter, it talks about Stephen, it describes him. It says Stephen is a man who is full of grace and power. And it goes on to say that no one could argue with him when he was speaking about Jesus because the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking was so powerful. No one could debate him. He was gifted in this way. He would go on to preach, and we'll cover this in really the next chapter, to preach one of the most comprehensive and incredible sermons recorded in Scripture. It was so good that they killed him for it. The next one in the list is Philip, a deacon. He would take up kind of take up the torch after Stephen is killed, and he would go out preaching the gospel. He would go to Samaria, right? Uh, the next fulfillment of Jesus' call in Acts chapter one verse eight: "You will be my witnesses." They're in Jerusalem, and then they're going to be going out. Well, Peter was or Philip was one of those guys who did it. He went and preached to a bunch of people in Samaria, including a guy named Simon. But he's probably best known for his his uh, interaction with the Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza, and that's in Acts chapter 8. But notice in verse 6 and 7 here of Acts 6, notice how the ministry that the Lord called the apostles to intertwined with the ministry that he called these deacons to. Verse 6 and 7, These they set before the apostles, and here's what they did. They prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I think these, I think these apostles realized what Paul would go on to write later, that the church is like a body made up of different parts who don't all have the same gifts and yet are all necessary for the work of the kingdom, all apart of the same body. They don't have the same function, Paul would say, but they are part of the same body. And so the apostles in the church, they recognized this. In fact, I think they celebrated this and they commissioned these deacons to ministry. They did it by laying hands on them and praying for them amidst the whole congregation. And so this is the reason why that we've commissioned our deacons the same way in the recent past. Because theirs is a calling from God That's recognized and celebrated by the church body. Praise the Lord for guys who do this well. We praise God for them. Not only because they they help meet physical needs in the church body, but more importantly because they're men of character. This doesn't mean that every deacon or every elder, for that matter, has reached perfection and are sinless, but that the way in which they live and the way in which they speak is consistent with Reflecting Jesus Christ. So we see here that after a a management plan was created and agreed on, the church continued to grow in mission outreach. And that's the result of unity in the church, really. The goal of the church today should reflect the same thing. Compassionate care within the body, while at the same time intentionally advancing the gospel 
nearby and out among the nations. That's what we do. And we do this in a number of ways. There's space in your notes. You can jot some of these things down. How, how do we do this in the church? Well, here's some practical things that we do. We, we do this by raising up leaders in the church, by preaching the gospel faithfully, without compromise, by prayer, by consistent and intentional discipleship within the body of Christ. We do this by meeting the needs of church members compassionately, generously. And this is why uh, in our last several members meetings, we've discussed our membership lists and why we've talked about how having an accurate membership list is important to ministry in the body. Who are we responsible for as a church? This is one of the practical reasons why that's so helpful. Another way we do this is by organizing our efforts for taking the gospel to our communities and beyond. How are we involved in missions? We've talked about missions already this morning, locally especially. We've talked more about it as uh, on the video that we got to see where it goes out beyond just our walls and our community. We get to be a part of ministry in lots of different ways. Now, we've already mentioned, and I think the, the apostles emphasized this, they talk about the necessity of preaching and prayer. They say, we're not going to abandon what we've been called to, to serve tables. That's a great ministry. It's just not what God's called us to. And so they're saying by doing that, the ministry that God calls us to is we can't negotiate on. We have to continue teaching and preaching. We have to continue in prayer. And so they do this. And they help us to understand that the church is more than just about being a food pantry. The church is more than just handing out food. Now, that's a good thing for us to do as Christians. James is pretty clear. If you see somebody in need and you just verbally say, hey, peace be with you, go on your way, and you do nothing to help them, well, is the love of God really in you? So I'm not saying we shouldn't give out food. I'm just saying that's not the primary purpose of the church. Because you can have a food pantry without Christians, but you can have a, never have a church without the gospel. And if those two things as a church aren't overlapping, then we need to reevaluate what our purpose is and what our goals are. Here's something else that the church learns from these verses. The church body is more than just a recognized organization. Okay, you've heard this said recently, the church is an organism. It's alive. You've also heard it said this way. The church is not just the building. The church is the people. And that's true. And I know it's maybe cliche to say, but it's got to be true. Right? Because if, if this church was to burn to the ground, we would be no less a church. Now, maybe we would have to meet in homes. Maybe we'd meet out right back next to the cemetery out here. I don't know what we'd do but we would still be the church of God at Ramsey Creek. These walls do not determine that. A 401c3 paper does not determine our legitimacy as a church body. Since this is true, the church body, as we see here, church body needs to make adjustments at times. Now, please understand, I'm not talking about our message. We don't adjust our message to the world around us. Because if we did that, we wouldn't actually be a true church anymore. 
And so we can't do that. We don't do that. But what we see here in Acts 6 is that a need arose in the church and the leaders had to pivot a little bit, right? They had to make some adjustments in the body. They said, as Moses recognized years and years before, I can't do this all myself. I need people to help. We need people to help. And so deacons were instituted. It's a good thing. What they said, in fact, verse 5 says, pleased the whole gathering. Imagine that. The church pleased. That's something their leaders decided to do. That's a good thing. Psalm 133 captures this idea well. You've heard this before. The psalmist says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's a very short psalm. I think it's only three verses. And it talks about unity as oil that runs down the beard of the priest and onto his garments and down to the floor. Unity is just this beautiful and all-encompassing thing that God gives to his people. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Verse 7 explains really the main point of all of this, I think, that the success of gospel ministry comes not by really convincing arguments from the apostles, not by a really good administrative uh, group that they made in the deacons. Success of the gospel ministry comes by the word of God increasing. Not platforms, not the size of the church body, but by the word of God increasing. And look at even some of the results of this. I mentioned this at the end of last week's message. The end of verse 7 says, even a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, why is that significant? Well, flip back to Acts 4 for just a minute. Flip back to the first couple of verses of Acts 4. We've, we've talked about this. This was one of the first attempts by the enemy to silence the message of Jesus. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. And notice who, who the first group was. The priests were part of this group. So in chapter 4, you've got priests who come upon, they take hold of the apostles, and they throw them in jail. And now in, the, in, verse, or in chapter 6, now by their faithful witness, you see some of these priests... Trusting in Jesus. That's cool. I hope you see that as cool because the faithful proclamation of the gospel will do things that we might not expect in a good way, usually. Think of that person. Maybe they're, maybe they're hard-hearted, like we would consider those priests to be in chapter 4. Maybe the person of your thinking the person you're thinking of, maybe they have turned aside from the church, from the truth of the God's word. Maybe you have a burden for them to hear and come back to the Lord. I hope this, this reminds us, even the fiercest enemies of the gospel can be saved because there's power in it. There's power in the gospel. There's power in the name and truth of Jesus. And so we, we never stop praying for them. We never stop sharing the truth with them because the Lord is still patient and the Lord is still gracious. He's still giving breath to breathe. And so we keep praying. 
And the reality is that maybe some listening this morning are like the priests who have hardened their hearts. And they've, they've heard the gospel and they've been maybe irritated by it. Maybe annoyed by it. And you've walked away. If it's possible that that's you, for whatever reason, I hope that you would want your heart to be softened to the Lord. Because the gospel is the same gospel that was preached to them that turned their lives around. It's the same gospel that you're hearing week in and week out. Jesus has come to make a way. He has broken down the dividing wall between sinner and father, between brother and sister. The gospel is calling you to give up your bitterness, your envy, your jealousy, your pride, your anger. Give it to Jesus. Because incredibly, he exchanges all of that, all of that unrighteousness for righteousness, all of that unrest for peace, death for life, but only when you turn to him for salvation. As we uh, close with a a summary, I think this is helpful. This is in uh, Tony Merida's Acts commentary. There's five points just to, to remind us of this morning. Number one, let's seek the salvation of everyone because the gospel can penetrate even the hardest hearts today. Number two, let's celebrate gospel-centered growth, even if it's not in this church, brothers and sisters. If a church is faithfully proclaiming Jesus Christ, let's celebrate with them their victories. Number three, let's show grace to one another, including leaders who are called to the things that God has called them to. Show grace and patience with one another. That doesn't mean we don't call out sin. Um, that just means that we, uh, as we learned in Colossians 3 this morning, that we pray and we show love. We, we put on love when we're together. Number four, let's, let's be determined to work as a team together. We are one body in Christ. And part of that means figuring out where you're called to serve because we're not all called to do everything. In the church, we'd all be exhausted and pretty well worthless if that was the case. And so God has called you to a ministry. Fulfill it. Do it. Don't get irritated when other people don't share the same passion for it necessarily, but just faithfully complete what God has called you to. And if God, if you haven't been involved in a ministry, I would say ask God to show you one because he's calling you to something. Every part of the body has a purpose. What's yours? Let's figure it out and work together. Because if you think of it in terms as a team, none of us are called to sit on the bench. None of us are fans of this. We're all players in the game, right? So jump in, participate in what the mission that God is that he's called you to. And then fifth and certainly not any less important, let's pray for one another. And let's pray with one another regularly for the unity of the church and for the advancement of the gospel here, in our homes, in our community, and to the world. Jesus continues to build his church, brothers and sisters. Are you an active part of it? Before we pray, I want to close with a quote from Adrian Rogers. I think he sums this up really well. He says this, Where there is healthy life, there is growth. Where there is healthy growth, there are problems. Where there are problems... There are God-given solutions. Where there are God-given solutions, 
there's even greater growth. Do you know why this early church bounded and grew as it did? Because every time the devil attacked, the people went to God in prayer and God moved. And their problems became a springboard for greater growth. He says, listen, friend, not even hell can stop a church that keeps its eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. May that describe us today. Let's pray. Lord, I confess and I probably represent my brothers and sisters here that our eyes, my eyes are not on you as often as they should be. And, and I get distracted and I sometimes put on complacency and maybe anger and impatience instead of love with my brothers and sisters. And so forgive me, Lord. Forgive us of where we've fallen short in this. Because as I prayed earlier, I think our heart's desire really is to see the gospel go out. And yet our church is a reflection of that, the unity here. And so I thank you for the unity that you've given us. And I pray for it more. I pray for greater peace amongst us. And I don't pray them simply that they make our lives easier or make us look good, Lord, but so that it gives us a springboard to go and to share the gospel more clearly. That it unites us to be a, a, a greater spear that pierces the darkness of this world. So Lord, ignite us. Light us up with the truth and the fire of your word. May the word of God increase in and amongst us and in and amongst our community, in our nation, in our world. Lord, you call us to ministries. They're all varying kinds. And I pray that you would help us to see and understand what they are and then to jump right in. We'll make errors, Lord. But I pray that as we're putting on love with one another, we show deference and, and patience and some grace. All, Lord, remembering that you love us as you love Jesus. As hard as that is to imagine some days when I know who I am, that's how you love. And so I pray that our love for one another might, might just reflect that in a little bit. But Lord, where we're complacent in this, call us out. Get us up. Stir us up to further love and good works. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to seek the salvation of those who may even be hard-hearted because the gospel is the power unto salvation for everyone who believes. So convince us of that, that we might go and be proclaimers of it unapologetically. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.